This is Carl Eric Fisher, author, assistant professor at Columbia University in person in recovery. And we're listening to Rebellion Dogs Radio. This is Rebellion Dogs Radio, now with less dogma and more bite. A contemporary look at addiction, mental health, and recovery. This is episode 68. Our guest is Columbia University psychiatrist, host of the Mod Pod Flourishing After Addiction podcast. He's the author of The Urge, Our History of Addiction. His name is Carl Eric Fisher. Our musical feature is Goodnight Sunrise, with their song debuting, well, pretty much time of recording, pre-March 2022. The song is called One Pill. I'll tell you a little bit about both our musical guest and our feature interview, and then I'll just press play and get out of the way, because we got a lot to cover. Now, Here's a guy with considerable influence and currency as part of a, a silo of addiction recovery medicine that has primacy, the psychiatric field. But Carl Eric Fisher's personal search for answers hasn't been satisfied by science and medicine, and he takes us on a trip into uh, history, art, philosophy, he challenges sacred cows and outdated, his words, not mine, outdated understandings and definitions. He challenges the privileged class in a system of health care that is classist, including recognizing his own privilege. His podcast has become one of my musts. I'm working my way through the uh, backlog to get me to episode zero. So I'll give you our interview together. It's about an hour, which only touches on the contents of his new book, The Urge, but every little side trail we take, I hope, offers context. I asked Carl about some of his influences and his inspiration. Carl, I wish you could have known Ernie Kurtz, who died way too soon for my liking since his passing in 2015, his his scholarliness, his humanity, his love. I'm afraid it hasn't been replaced or replicated. Uh, I, If you're hoping Carl and I talk about Ernie Kurtz, we don't. We couldn't go on forever. <laughs> we cover a lot. And uh, our musical uh, guest will be uh, Goodnight Sunrise with their latest song, One Pill. I, I think I've played them for you before, which puts them on a pretty short list of getting more than one spin on a um, modest podcast. Uh, they had a pandemic offering called Not Dead Yet. Great song, great punk rock ethos. Uh, their latest, with help from uh, their friends in the band Our Lady Peace, helps to replicate their live performance, which they miss so much. They're made for the stage. They're theatric. They engage the audience. It's hard for them to put on an MP3 what the good night sunrise live experience is. And in my indie can life, I've seen them playing at the 2 a.m. set at the Bovine Sex Club on Queen Street West in Toronto, which they put as much thrill and excitement and gratitude into as opening for uh, Bon Jovi, 
uh, to Stadium Rock fans. Uh, they headline, they showcase. They were on the verge in pre-pandemic, and I hope they're on the road soon so they can show you what I'm talking about. Just one more minute, I will turn to our Carl Eric Fisher interview about his book, The Urge. But here's the lyrics for their song, One Pill, just as a teaser. One pill to make you stronger, one pill to wear you out, one pill to make you wonder, one pill to ease your doubts. We're all just trying to get by. Everyone's on their own supply. Doesn't matter what you call it if it takes you higher. I love unnatural rhymes, the way they rhyme supply and higher. Very clever. Anyway, forget about that. Back to the song. We're all just living a lie. Nobody's going to ask you why. Doesn't matter what you call it if it takes you higher. One pill to wake you up. One pill to help you sleep. One pill to hold you captive. One pill to set you free. You're looking in the wrong direction if you're looking for something to find. And if you keep on staring at the same reflection, you might as well be blind. One pill to take you farther. One pill to slow you down. One pill to fuel the fire, one pill to burn you out. One pill to take you higher, one pill to break the fall, one pill to feel desire, one pill to feel at all. This is Leslie Jameson, author of The Recovering, Intoxication and Its Aftermath, and you are listening to Rebellion Dogs Radio. Thanks for writing your book, Carl. Loved it. I remember being at Book Expo America. I was in New York, and it was early in the world of uh, ebooks and breaking down of the uh, guardians of publishing and you know uh, Amazon and publishing. And it was a panel of experts, and they were talking about too many books in the marketplace. Now, if I saw a panel of readers saying there were too many books in the marketplace. I would accept that. <laughs> but uh, we, we don't hear that from readers. Uh, readers love the diversity that's available. I come from the music industry, so we learned this 20 years earlier, publishing industry in terms of the uh, e-files and how to monetize free, right? People are getting the music for free, but they'll still buy the $40 t-shirt, you know? Poets, not so easy. <laughs> People don't fill up stadiums for that. But I've, I've always got three books on the go. I put some of them on hold when I uh, saw yours. And I really loved your uh, interview with uh, Dr. John Kelly. Hmm. And uh, I went back and listened to the insider interview about Purdue. I the first one I read was a big pharma I think was the title of it. Mm -hmm. um, it was again sort of a, a doctor's insider with, you know, I, I figured every new drug that came out was better than the last one, and that's mm -hmm. not necessarily how they measure them. Sometimes they're better than nothing. Going back, yeah, as you read, going back centuries, that's yeah. been a constant, constant theme that any new drug gets a honeymoon period. Yeah, Most people assume that because it's new, it's safe, or at least there's something special about it. And over and over again, it's led to big problems. Yeah. 
So I want to cover what you learned about the past that you might have been surprised with. Um, I, I learned some things like I've read a lot of the books you uh, have in your notes section, uh, but but I still learned some new things or some new perspectives uh, from your book and where we're at now and then what's next in the world of recovery and maybe addiction medicine. Uh, but first, uh, can we talk a little bit about the writing process for you uh, when you decided to write a book and launching a book during COVID? Like, uh, you know, tell us about Yeah, I'll take that last one first because uh, it's been a blessing and a curse. I've met some amazing folks and there's so many passionate people like you, I, you know, I'm so grateful that podcasts exist because otherwise if it was a pandemic in the 1980s, I mean, we'd be a lot worse off in a lot of ways, yeah. but just for my book narrowly, the ability to meet people across the world and have contact with writers and advocates and people working for change has been such a blessing. Yeah. Uh, so I'm grateful for that. And it's a bummer. You know, it's a bummer. I always imagined having a party at some bookstore with all my friends and that still hasn't happened yet. Maybe exactly. someday soon, but that's sort of a bummer because it's it's a moment I was imagining for a really long time. The first part of your question was about the writing process and just how I got into it. And, you know, it took me at least 10 years. It really started pretty soon after I, after I myself got into recovery. I had a really dramatic episode where I had a stimulant psychosis. Mm -hmm. I wound up in the Bellevue Hospital locked psychiatric ward. Through a lot of luck, I was able to access treatment. I got treated well because I'm a doctor and for a lot of other reasons. And I got a lot out of that. And I was still left with this question, like what had actually gone wrong with me? And I had the sense that there was more, more to it outside of medicine. Like all those books you mentioned, looking at the history and understanding some of the sociocultural baggage that's attached to the notion of addiction. Uh, so it really, I mean, it started right at the beginning and it was a, a long process of exploration more for myself than anything else. It was a, it was something I wanted for myself. It was the book I wanted for myself that I, that wasn't really out there. Quite a journey. Were you sitting in, in Bellevue thinking I'll write a book one day or, or when did the idea hit you that, you know, there's something missing in the marketplace. And uh, if no one else will fill it, I will. No, no, because there's no sense of like marketing positioning for me back then. It was yeah. more, you know, it's a, it's a funny, complex trajectory. And it's one that I've been thinking more and more about and probably couldn't have articulated to you at the time. But when I look back on those early, early days, mm -hmm. I think... I think there was still an element of specialness and uniqueness that I was holding on to. Yeah. When I first came out, I thought, oh, holy moly, like I, I had such an incredible experience. There's a specialized rehab for doctors, and there are all these unique and fascinating things about my story. And the story has to be told. And there there is also an element of uh, resentment around me being encouraged to go to treatment it's it wasn't quite coercion because it was a voluntary choice but it wasn't totally free either because there was like my medical license hanging over me to this day i acknowledge that there were elements of the rehab that i went to that were not great and i think harmful for some people 
I had to get past all that. You know, I had to get past the specialness. And it was actually the process of looking into the history that helped me to let go of some of that specialness. My story wasn't so special. Actually, you know, you can go back hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of years and find very similar themes and issues. And so at that point, it became almost a process of undoing. It was like, okay, I've started down this path. I do think there's value in here. I do have the sense that um, there's a way of translating this history to the general public that hasn't happened yet that I was looking for. And so maybe I can use the history as a window into understanding in a way, the um, the contingency mm-hmm. of the situation, that it's just my story. Yeah. You know, there was someone you quoted, uh, another Canadian, as a matter of fact. She got her undergrad at uh, Queen's University, Hannah Picard, mm. uh, who said uh, that what's missing in the definition of uh, addiction is the word denial. And isn't this the great frustration? Like everyone wants to get a binary conclusion on what causes addiction, uh, how to define it, how to treat it, uh, why it doesn't work when it doesn't work, who's to blame for that. When a lot of this is our global frustration with that which we can't control, and that's human nature and denial, like you you were talking about your own denial, you're completely educated about addiction, you're trying to get out of being cared for being treated by people who are advocates of yours. And, you know, we all have that story, right? I, I, I was, you know, I spent three Saturday mornings in the hospital from alcohol and drug related things from the night before all life threatening, right? You know, face up in my own vomit once, uh, suicide attempt, uh, got mugged selling hashish, right? You know, and I got beat up pretty bad. But none of those things scared me. I, I just wanted to get out of there and get back to my drugs. That's the thing, isn't it? And and how are we ever going to, you know, sort of treat that um, denial aspect yeah. of it? Yeah, it's such a complex and messy topic, really. Um, Because I think there are some good reasons why medicine is skeptical of denial. Some of that is Freud in an appropriate skepticism. And I like Freud. There are aspects of Freud, but there are ways that his thinking on addiction is totally off. Uh, Some of that is the, the notion of denial has been used as a weapon. By saying people are in denial, it gives you the the sort of leverage to justify sometimes very harsh prohibitionist interventions. But it's also just a really complicated phenomenon that I don't claim to fully grok at this point in time. Yeah. So but I, I do I'm with I'm with Hannah Picard and I think a lot of others in saying that there's a way that in some contemporary descriptions of addiction, it gets too polarized into some black or white notion of totally free choice versus total hijacked compulsion. And my experience and my experience talking to other people in recovery and my experience talking to my patients is that usually the truth is somewhere in between. Yeah, There's still an element of choice. When I was relapsing and I was walking down the stairs and out to the corner store, I was watching myself do it. 
And it, it wasn't that I was hijacked in some sort of dehumanized way. It was right. that there's a way that choice goes awry. It's much more complicated than choice versus hijacking. So, you know, I, th I think it's hard to occupy that space. It's a really kind of mystifying space that philosophers have uh, struggled to understand for hundreds upon hundreds of years. Another area I see a lot of attention given to is the stigma. And you're a, a Zen guy. You're a never before nor against. You know, that's the mind's greatest uh, quandary, right? You know, it just stigma to me is a double-edged sword. If I wasn't ashamed, would I have recovered? But the stigma of being an addict, the stigma of being in a certain recovery community, the stigma of being a non-drinker. I mean, all, all of these things are part of that. You talked about that chime idea with uh, John Kelly, right? And the identity thing. I mean, we resist recovery because we can't even picture a world that isn't a provisional life without alcohol. We can't see ourselves there. But this, uh, this notion of trying to fight the stigma that it's okay to be uh, a drug user, let's meet them where they're at. And I'm all for that. But I don't know if we should leave them where they're at if we haven't fully disclosed the options that are available. You know, so is this trying to eliminate the stigma? Is that going to solve the problem? Or is that just something we need to make space for? What do you think about that? I think you're getting at something important and that we use the word stigma in a lot of different ways. Yeah. And there's a version of stigma that is definitely life-threatening and dangerous, maybe even worse than the sort of individual stigma that somebody might have, like some sort of bad judgment, some random individual on the street might have. Even worse than that is maybe the structural stigma yeah. in the ways that stigma is instituted and our treatment systems are set up. So we get this totally separate and insufficient addiction treatment system. Uh, but, you know, I think you're right that um, if we could wave a magic wand and just eliminate all stigma, whatever that is, it wouldn't be the only solution. It's a major barrier right now. I, I, I had the great pleasure to talk to Owen Flanagan, who's mm -hmm. a philosopher who is also out as in recovery. He has a new book out that I love. I got to interview him about uh, called um, How to Do Things with Emotions. And it's about uh, shame, a big portion of it. And there, there's something, there's a popularized version in pop psychology now that all shame is bad and we yeah. should eradicate shame. And as I understand him, Flanagan's arguing that that's, that's too far it's pushing the pendulum too far in the other direction, that there's a version of healthy shame. There mm -hmm. certainly is a version of dangerous shame and counterproductive shame. Right. Like the shame I definitely felt. <clears throat> and like, a, I think a lot of people with addiction feel that gets them hiding and keeps them from reaching out for help. But then there's also the sort of healthy shame, like when a mother says to her child, you know, you should be ashamed that you ate all of your brother's M&Ms. Yeah. That's a healthy shame in that, it, it expresses some sort of moral wisdom. It doesn't mean you're a bad person, but it says that's a shameful act. And maybe, maybe you should be, if you could fully appreciate our interconnectedness or how that hurt your brother, then maybe you would feel something. And that feeling 
would help you toward the good. It would help you toward flourishing. Um, so, you know, I'm with you that, you know, we should be really, really careful. That's one of the big themes of the language, you know, I, of the book is to be very careful about language and not to get into policing people's language, but using language like stigma or like disease or like whatever as a cue for opening up and looking deeper at what we're actually talking about. Well, again, people are people and we always will be trying to control our own narcissism as small differences and rationalizing our foibles and demonizing others. <laughs> And then even in anything sort of social or the, the recovery world, we're, we're not unique or special, but do you see a lot of uh, tribalism, people living in silos? And uh, you, you mentioned the father and son team of the Moyers, right? You know, uh, one was a journalist. Well, both were journalists, right? And mm -hmm. One fell into addiction. The younger William uh, Moyers, talks of his story in his early advocacy work. So he's uh, going to Congress, trying to promote, you know, better treatment, less stigma, blah, blah, blah. And one of the congressmen took him in his office and said, you know, your industry comes knocking on our door every once in a while. You're really good at circling the wagon, but then you shoot into the middle. Mm -hmm. You know, and uh, there's a lot of, I don't know why, uh, uh, the idea of uh, abstinence is a threat to uh, moderation management or harm reduction. I, I don't know why it's one or the other or this group or that group, this peer group, that peer group. You're, you're an insider. Do you, do you, what's your view of that? And is there any way where we can sort of shine the light without trying to fight the darkness all the time? Yeah, I sure don't have the answer to how to fix ideological divisions and that sort of hatred that drives. I, I think it's not a stretch to call it hatred. To, uh, yeah, I don't the, think the so way either. that we, yeah. Yeah. we we divide up ourselves tragically into these warring camps. When mm -hmm. really, if we could see our connections, we could recognize how we're all in the same boat together. Uh, but you know, that's one of the phenomena that I was really interested in in the book itself that yeah. uh, addiction advocacy and the addiction treatment industry gets stuck holding on to fixed views and then winds up leading down really harmful paths. And, you know, one of the controversies was the Rand report in the 1970s, where a bunch of people who were involved in alcoholism advocacy uh, thought that there was something dangerous and very well con conducted research that said out of the universe of people with alcohol problems who got treatment, yeah. some are able to safely return to moderate drinking. Yeah. And they thought that that was dangerous and misleading and harmful and it would kill people. And so they tried to suppress the science and it became a huge uh, shootout basically with yeah. the boring yeah. public relations conferences, press conferences. So I do think we have to be very careful about messaging and very, I do think it's useful to be careful about language. Mm -hmm. The We also should be really, really careful. I think to, to hold on to that, those concepts very loosely. I mean, that's how I treat addiction myself and my own personal recovery mm -hmm. is um, it took me a whole book to 
to get to this point, <laughs> not just the writing of it, but the process of researching it. Yeah. Um, you know, again, it was really personally helpful for me to get a sense of living with that paradox that I have this life-threatening condition that is special. You know, I, I qualify for membership in this club of folks that I can really relate to. And that gives me a lot of strength in that community. And simultaneously, I don't think there's anything all that special about addiction. And it's ultimately something contiguous with all of human suffering that right. addiction exists in all of us. And that yeah. addiction is really just the place where universal human struggles with self-control are most on display. Uh, and that doesn't make any damn sense. You know, that's a paradox, but I don't see another way forward other than holding those, those two ideas, just kind of holding them loosely in a pluralistic sort of way. Yeah. Even looking at our own lives, we can, sort of understand it better i probably couldn't have found recovery without help right without having uh, again the sea and shine the connection with uh, pe people you're kinder to uh reductionist thinking uh than i've been and, and i'm taking a page out of your book about there's a place for it right but you know people say the opposite of Addiction isn't sobriety, it's connection. Well, you can find connection at the crack house and, you know, uh, with the other barflies in your local watering hall, uh, you can find enablers, right? I needed positive role models. And, and until I had that, until I saw other people in their pro-social behavior modeling recovery, I, I wasn't even willing to entertain it, right? So I, I needed that experience, that uh, connection. I can't remember what my question was now. Well, you were talking about reductionist thinking, and right. it sounded like you were saying you, you, you are more uh, wary or uh, troubled by reductionist thinking. And, right. And there's a way I was, I, I'm actually curious to hear more about that. Like what, in what way was I kind, kinder than you expected well, to reductionists? Um, you did say something about it. It has a, its place in, in certain scientific cases. We need to sort of uh, reduce down to the bare facts and then move on from there. You know, we can't be ruled by it. We can't, we, like you said, you know, we need to wear life like a loose garment. Uh, mm. You know, people get so caught up on recovered, recovering, um, you know, whether they should label themselves as, as an addict. In, they've been in recovery for 11 years, right? You know? Right, right. You know, and those are all whatever works for you, right? We, yeah, I think, you know, the stakes are really high, so I can understand yeah, why some people That's what would have very, very strong feelings. Yeah. Um, but, you know, this, this is true at the individual level and the social level. I think yeah. people reach for total solutions yeah. when they're scared and when they're grappling with a really challenging problem. Yeah. So, you know, there's a lot of anti-medication stigma, for example. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, one of the common arguments is, well, that's not real recovery or it's not truly being clean or there's much, much more to recovery than than just taking a medication and protecting yourself from relapse or eliminating cravings. And, you know, of course there is, <laughs> of course there's much more to recovery than that. And like what reasonable person is out there saying that, you know, um, Suboxone, for example, is going to solve all the world's problems, but mm -hmm. the inability to hold those truths together that we could save 
who knows how many lives, tens of thousands of lives by expanding access to these life-saving medications and also recognizing that there's more to it, that saving lives and stopping relapses is, is the first step and it's signing up for the marathon. And then you have to go through and support people in all the different dimensions of their life. Uh, so, you know, I, reductionism has its place. My biggest problem with reductionism in the book, which I think comes out in some, but not all messaging around the brain disease model, yes, the so-called brain, because I don't think it's one thing. Yeah. People use that term in different ways, but um, is when they insist on primacy, when they say, this is the best way, it's the yeah. fundamental way. It's, yeah. you know, this is the one um, foundation on which we can build all the rest of it. And that I think is um, really a problem. Yeah, because especially if you say, uh, like me and my world of addiction, I, I, I think I remember what I was talking about. You were talking about that report where some people can return to moderate drinking. And that was threatening to people advocating for abstinence, right? And um, I needed help to quit drugs and alcohol. I wasn't even my goal. <laughs> I was just sort of forced into it. Yeah, me neither. But I quit smoking, which is a, a more hideous and sinister addiction than alcohol or uh, psychedelic drugs. I did that on my own because I don't know why. Maybe I had more recovery capital, right? Like I, I had reasons to be a non-smoker. I, I could picture, you know, the advantages of being a non-smoker where, you know, I couldn't picture. The, I thought, you know, living sober was worse than dying drunk. There was something mm -hmm. romantic about, you know, the tragic alcoholic uh uh, grand finale, you know, and, uh, you know, that's, that, that's crazy thinking, but, but you, you don't know it when you're in it. Uh, mm -hmm. But with smoking, I just thought, I, I want to perform at a higher level, I can't have it both ways, right? Maybe I could yeah. be cool without smoking. And I, I, I didn't need a program, I didn't need medical intervention, I, I just quit, and mm -hmm. started running. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 I think, you know, it's dangerous to think that any one model holds all the answers. Yeah. And again, on the social level, I think we can see these same tendencies reflected in the individual level that, you know, societies tend to swing to these extremes of only prohibition as if that would solve a drug epidemic or only a primarily mutual health based approach as if that's the way to solve it. You know, like we need all these things working together in concert. They're not taking away from each other. The fact that you didn't have to go to some specialized medical program to quit smoking doesn't take away from the fact that there are some people who do need Absolutely medical assistance right. to quit smoking. Yeah. And guess what? Like when my parents die, both of them are going to die primarily from the effects of smoking tobacco. Yeah. Uh, so I think we need all the tools that we have, you know, we overestimate in a way, even though the opioid epidemic is such a tremendous crisis, uh, the overdose crisis is, um, I mean, worse day by day, but we underestimate um, the deaths from alcohol, tobacco, and all the rest. And we just need every, every arrow in our quiver. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I know that um, everybody has these continuums, right? You know, our, uh, you know, addicted to our political view, ad addicted to our opinions, uh, right? Uh, 
you know, our relationship with food, our relationship with prestige, it affects everyone. You, you don't yeah. mention them in your book at all, but uh, you might remember uh, Russell Brand had, had a book out called Recovery. Oh, sure. Yeah. And, and he came out with the idea that it's, it's cause and effect. The market economy leads to consumerism. Addiction is part of consumerism, right? Mm-hmm. It's encouraged. It's glorified. Uh, there's going to be collateral damage from it, right? You know, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. you mentioned that what what is it? Twenty five percent of cannabis users uh, buy seventy five percent of uh, cannabinoids and and actual weed or whatever they're buying. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm fully on board with a lot of his arguments. I think it's a useful contextualization for Russell Brand. So you know, people have been saying that for ages that. Um, the beats, for example, like William Burroughs and yeah, Allen Ginsberg, that we're saying a lot of this stuff about consumption. I mean, yeah. Naked Lunch is a great commentary on the um the oppressive and uh toxic forces of consumption. While at the same time that Burroughs was missing the boat on a lot of other stuff about yeah. addiction. Um, that's why I profile him at length, uh, because he's such a incredible character. It's such wisdom in some ways about the nature of addiction and the way that it's much more than a substance while also being sucked into some really reductionistic views about how cocaine, for example, is not truly addicting because it's not real dependence. Like he still was vulnerable to that kind of thinking, but those, you know, people, people have been calling attention to those sorts of issues all the way back to the native Americans, you know, they're native Americans giving the exact same messaging that addiction was not just some individual problem and it wasn't just getting taken over by a dangerous substance but pointing to the way that um alcohol problems are just one facet is a facet as a jewel and so it's not really a jewel like but it's (laughs) alcohol problems were just one piece of the puzzle regarding this broader project of oppression and dislocation and war and famine and all the rest. And if we if we try to treat addiction like it's an individualistic problem, we miss out on a lot of ways to understand ourselves and also to help others. Yeah. And even how people define recovery has to be uh, individualized, right? Uh, Other-oriented care in that regard. And this is something, you, you know, you said uh, lots at stake, so that's why there's a lot of this all-or-nothing thinking, right? Because the uh, the consequences can be so severe, right? So, so I bought into like a lot of what I was told that was just seems to me to be not superstitious thinking, but anecdotal conclusions, right? Like, uh, yeah, um, you know, I had a friend who. Uh, uh, went to NA, went to AA, was on uh, uh, methadone. He had uh, five, three times he had a five-year celebration of long-term recovery and then lost it, right? Mm. The last time his doctor put him on methadone, and I I don't really know much about methadone. I'm a lay person, but, you know, didn't bother me that's between you and your doctor and and i i saw him uh i was involved in the presentation of his 15 year you know like and mm-hmm. he helped a lot of people and he was uh an asset to the recovery community 
but it was this dark secret because he knew people would be so judgy about it. Well, you're mm-hmm. not really sober. And, you know, it's like at the NA meeting, you're holding my coffee and cigarette. Let me show you my uh, 10 year keychain. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Still addicted to something. <laughs> right. Yeah. I think it's a great story. We need more stories like that because there is such shame and it's, it's a type of stigma within the recovery community yeah. that's getting back to this notion of stigma and how there are many different ways of understanding and thinking about stigma. I was really shocked to learn that um, from the beginning, 12 step groups didn't have that big of a problem with medications. I thought, because what I had heard as a doctor mm-hmm. was that um, these ignorant, uh, nobody would ever say this, but like, this is, <laughs> this is the implication. These ignorant lay people these 12 steppers are anti-science and they don't think it's real recovery. Mm-hmm. And so they're standing in the way of medical progress. Right. And in actuality, uh, the early 12 step writers, like if you read the early, early editions of the grapevine, yeah. people are thinking about it. People are not dummies. You know, they're talking about like, Oh, sedatives have risks and benefits. Yeah. And we have to be very careful. And that's something between you and your doctor, mm-hmm. even as there was a, a sedative epidemic that was killing people like Jimi Hendrix and Marilyn Monroe. Yeah. Uh, and then, so a lot of that anti-medication stigma is not from 12 I don't think. It's, it's only it's more, from fundamentalism. It's from a form of fundamentalism that I think was really driven by prohibitionism yeah. and policy changes. Yeah. It, was, it was more about the ways that methadone programs were warped mm-hmm. by these really restrictive paternalistic regulations um you know it was heartbreaking looking at the history of the early methadone programs because they were these beautiful holistic wraparound services where people got a lot of different care you really tell that story well with uh nice Nice wonder dole Dole when they sort of came together like you talked about her 103rd street uh upper east end like i picture going to uh humanists and atheists AA meeting right around the corner from there, right? You know, like I like you really, you know, make it a neighborhood and you can picture the 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 time. And the fact that that wasn't her goal at all. She didn't want to have anything to do with addiction. She wanted to be in the army and be a surgeon. And, right. and it didn't work out that way. But but they came up with a way of making people's lives better, but somehow it wasn't good enough. Yeah. Because it didn't fit somebody else's definition where you know. Yeah, but this falls back, you know, this gets back to what you were talking about, about the, the tendency for ideological divisions and circling the wagons. Yeah. Because once they came under attack, Nice Wander and Dole, the inventors yeah. of, not the inventors, but the, the, the people who pioneered the use of methadone for the treatment of addiction, once they be, came under attack, I think that they slipped too far into reductionistic explanations. And that only added fuel to the fire. So when people said this is not real recovery or what are you doing giving these opioids to addicts, they said, well, oh, you know, heroin addiction is a metabolic disease. And it's not, I mean, not the way they were talking about it. It's not that that's the best level or that the, um, there's something about cellular metabolism. It's just the methadone is effective in certain ways when you administer it safely and it allows people to engage in recovery. So I think the, the sniping and the backbiting and the, the divisions prompt some 
some difficult responses where people fall into, despite their best intentions and despite some really nuanced thinking, they can fall into that sort of us versus them dichotomy. Um, that's that's the part that was really heartbreaking, as the way that the whole methadone situation devolved into uh, this like ideological warfare. Yeah, it gets mean spirited and counterproductive. It's but again, for everyone, the the stakes are so high. It's hard to be calm and thoughtful, and let's see how this plays out. You know, it just seems like. Uh, this is going to kill people or whatever. In Canada, where cannabis is legal most places, it's going to influence the atmosphere in 12-step and other peer-to-peer recovery because people will be taking prescribed cannabinoids and I'm sober and here's my medallion and I'm speaking at such and such a meeting and someone else will be pointing the finger and go, that's not sober and says who, right? You know, like... uh, I'm a pretty straight edge person when it comes to my own recovery, but whatever works uh, in my own home group, this was a real envelope pusher, but this woman was totally rejected from uh, NA um, because of her own handcrafted process to improving her life. She was uh, off crack, off heroin, and had a few drinks and would smoke a joint with her friends sometimes backstage at the club. And um, she considered herself sober, right? And eligible to chair the meeting like anybody else, right? You know, I'm, there was a meeting, you know, can we uh, let this happen? I said, well, let's talk about that. Our group is called, you know, Beyond Belief Agnostics and Free Thinkers Group. So we're a free thinkers group Let's make a list of all the things that are forbidden and all the things that are sacred. Let's make a list of all of them. Let's not make it personal about one person, one situation. And we couldn't agree on anything that, you know, was uh, so she was allowed to stay, but people left the group because they found Mm -hmm. that, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, sort of taking advantage of the permissiveness of, uh, you know, the, the rules. Right. But yeah, you know, and isn't the beautiful thing that people can do that? You know, people can leave and they can find their own group. Like, I yeah. love how mutual help groups are this anarchic distributed system mm-hmm. and by design, you know, that's, um, I talk about this a little bit in the book, how in the early days of AA, they really struggled with some yeah. of these organizational questions. And I think very wisely came up with very flexible traditions that say the only requirement for membership is a desire to stop. And, you know, they they had struggles, not that this is the same as somebody in partial recovery or not fully abstinent recovery, but they had big discussions about whether or not to allow LGBTQ people into groups. Yeah. And they had big discussions about whether or not to allow black people into certain groups. Yeah. Cause and a decent upstanding alcoholic. So won't come. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, or any or choose. AA your, was no know. better than the rest of America. Right. You know, so why, yeah, exactly. Why would it not reflect the overall prejudices? But I think it's, it's tremendously wise that people were able to say, you know, we're going to keep it simple. You know, the groups can, and then, you know, I see it in New York City. People will self-associate. If people want a really hardcore classic group, 
They know yeah. where to go for it. And if people yeah. want an agnostic oriented group that's still within traditional, they go to that. And if people want to really sort of like Judeo-Christian oriented group, they go to that and it takes a little effort. And of course, if people want something outside of a 12-step tradition, they go to that. I think that's one of the things that I think is really beautiful about this moment in time and holds a lot of potential is that there's more respect for all the varieties of recovery and that there are more people talking about the ways that people come to their own understanding of recovery through so many different pathways and practices and uh, the situation is so urgent in some ways that we need that sort of broader pluralistic respect because a one-size-fits-all model just doesn't help just doesn't doesn't work and, yeah and it's the ship has left the dock right with the, especially with virtual recovery where you can go to like even if you live in a small town with only one na one oa meeting which are you going to go to right you can you can go find uh refuge recovery or a dharma recovery meeting and try that out you can go to smart recovery and you don't have to forfeit your aa membership to do it you you can try life ring and you can try she recovers and 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 i think people are doing that at least millennials and generation z that are now getting sober they're definitely why wouldn't they try everything right yes but you get a lot of people still refer to the 12-step model as the last house on the block, mm-hmm. if that was ever or true. Or at the very least, that it's just synonymous, that if you say recovery, it means 12-step recovery. Yeah. yeah. If you mean sober, it means the definition of sober Yeah, that most people understand as traditional recovery. Now, one of the things that I uh, uh, don't know if I relearned or, or learned in your book about uh, the whole... Um, uh, sort of categorizing of uh, addiction. Well, let's talk about alcoholism, uh, dipsomaniacs. Uh, I thought it was a 20th century thing where it was first considered a, a disease, right? And and in my a critical, maybe even cynical view, I thought, well, that's the doctor is just wanting to gain dominion over this uh, jurisdiction, right? It's a disease, we'll treat it with medicine, get out of the way. It, it it wasn't 20th century thing, was it? I mean, um, can you all, share no. a little bit about how far back that goes and how it's it's a fluid thing? Yeah. Yeah, I, you know, there's a difference between the concept and the term. Yeah. And so the term alcoholism is more recent. And even the term addiction is more recent mm-hmm. when we're referring to the state of powerlessness or trouble controlling substance use, but we can find a notion of a medical view of addiction back very far, at least to the gin craze in the earlier part of the 18th century in the United Kingdom, where medical writers got really concerned about this epidemic of alcohol, essentially. Mm -hmm. And came up with a variety of explanations for why that would be so. What is the exact way that alcohol seems to have this power over uh, London at the time? And and from that point onward, people use the the notion of disease in different ways. So I, I talk about Benjamin Rush, who was 
one of the founding fathers and was sort of a politician before he had to sort of retreat from politics because he ruffled yeah. too many feathers. Yeah. And then he became a doctor, probably to our benefit because he helped to establish a lot of American medicine. And he called, uh, he, he didn't use these terms, but he called addiction a disease. Uh, habitual drunkenness is more to the terminology he would use back then. Um, but he had a very flexible and open-minded view of that, where he said medicine was just one part of the solution. And then there's also a role for community and for prayer and moral education and all the rest in his particular cultural context. And right around the same time, there was a different guy in England, Thomas Trotter, mm -hmm. who also said that habitual drunkenness was a disease, but he argued more for primacy. He was the one who said, yeah. uh, essentially, all you guys get out of the way, you've had your shot. Now it's time for medicine to take over. And he said, really, the doctors were best situated to address the problem of habitual drunkenness. And so it's part of the reason why I wanted to raise a flag and prompt people to look more closely at what we mean by disease, because some of these ideological battles that we've been talking about are a result of people talking past each other. One person says disease model and they think they mean one thing. The other person means something else. You know, in the Benjamin Rush sense, you could be saying, you know, addiction is uh, something that deserves to be treated with compassion by the medical profession. Fine. A hundred percent. I have no problem. I don't think anybody should have a problem with that. It seems like a pretty low bar, but then other people have very explicitly used the notion of disease to say, the causes are best located in biology and it's um, primarily a brain disease and that's where we should be looking. And so, um, you know, I think that history of the ways that medicine has tried to grapple with the history of addiction is just a great example of the ways we twist ourselves up in knots and um, just get confused about what it is we're talking about. You were even quite kind to the uh, 1939 notion of, uh, what did Silkworth call it? An allergy, but an allergy. I, mean, I think he meant it as a metaphor, as you refer to it. And but people get caught up in some. Now we know what it is. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it's a raft that I think is meant to get you over to the other shore, and then yeah, yeah, let it go. Yeah. People line up pretty quickly on one side or the other of of a lot of these issues. Like it's, uh, again, high stakes. Uh, Mark Lewis, you know, doesn't like the idea of the disease model. And I don't think it's perfect either. And tell me why you feel that way, right? You know, you're, I'm sure you're right, right? You know, but mm -hmm. if people want to use that, I don't mind if people want to call themselves recovered or recovering or you know, right. I don't care. You know, I, I, I waded into that debate a little bit because I wrote the first thing I wrote before even the book came out mm -hmm. was an essay in the New York Times saying it was uh, calling addiction a disease is misleading. Yeah. And I tried to be careful about that to say, I didn't say anything about the disease model because like we've been talking about, I don't think there is one model and people wind up talking past each other. Yeah. But uh, I really tried to acknowledge that the notion of disease is a double-edged sword. There are ways that, like we were talking in the early history of AA, um, advocates use the disease notion in positive ways to get mm -hmm. treatment, to get hospitals to open their doors to people with addiction problems, to get funding, uh, really beneficial things. And 
the notion of disease has been overly reductionistic and really narrowed our understanding in some very harmful and misleading ways. So, you know, in the end, it's not that I think there's one better or worse way to describe addiction. It's just hoping to call attention to the notion that it's confusing. It's just yeah. confusing to use this really messy word that, that has had a lot of associations attached to it going back to the gin craze and earlier, just it's, uh, it's better yeah. to just pause and think about what do we actually mean by this term? Yeah. The uh, opium for the masses, that whole, uh, uh, and e while well, you even talked about even tobacco and tea and coffee and like anything that'll, uh, give you a bit of a buzz. What was your biggest surprise or aha moment when you were sort of uh, digging into the history of um, addiction and recovery? Well, there's a lot. We covered a couple. How far back the disease notion goes. Mm -hmm. um, there is a lot that was just really surprising to me. Um, one that comes to mind that we haven't talked too much about is the notion that drug epidemics are nothing new. Right. That we've been having drug epidemics for at least 500 years, mm -hmm. going back to tobacco when it was first brought back from the so-called New World mm -hmm. to Europe and Asia, and then onward from there, alcohol epidemics and stimulants and opioids over and over again, and the first American opioid epidemic in around the time of the Civil War. Because in medicine, we're really blind to that. It's almost as if addiction history begins around 1900s, 1910s. And there are actually some really wise and thoughtful thinkers who struggled with the idea of epidemics and struggle with those social problems around drug problems going back to earlier times. You know, maybe chief among them, the uh, Native Americans I was referring to earlier that yeah, independently formed these... Yeah, handsome lake that formed these recovery communities totally independently of AA. I, by the way, I really wanted there to be some sort of connection or through line from early Native American recovery communities to AA through the Washingtonians. Yeah. Um, and I really looked for it and I didn't find anything, which to me suggests that it's something deeper about the um the power of these movements to come together in community. Yeah. That if if like through convergent evolution, this sort of beautiful model of mutual help recovery arises at different points across different cultures and different times, uh, there's something really special about it. Yeah, that's right. It's it's natural. Like it, it, it doesn't require, you can't break the link in the chain, right? You know, there are the independent cells. Because uh, yeah, I don't think Bill Wilson even knew what the Washingtonian movement was. No, he wrote about that actually. He yeah. he he only learned about the Washingtonians much later. Yeah. And then he actually wrote about it in the grapevine, and then that became part of the motivation for the traditions. Yeah. Yeah. Certain of the traditions and the way they thought about the traditions, as far as yeah. I understand. Sort of moving forward, like uh, let's talk about some of your uh, mentors. You refer to uh, George Coob and uh, William White and that sort of thing. I mean, they aren't going to be around forever. You know, there's got to be the next wave of advocates and that sort of thing. I I hope you feel like you are, uh, uh, you know, a small part of that uh, mechanism, but. Uh, who who do you see as your uh, mentors 
who have you learned the most from? So many from so many different walks of life. I I hesitate to even open my mouth because it's already a mistake. I'm I'm sure I'll miss out on a lot of people. You know, William White for certain, uh, for a lot of reasons. I could probably do a whole podcast on all the ways I respect William White and just talk Mm -hmm. for an hour. But one thing that comes to mind, uh, and he he helped me out a tremendous amount and was really generous in talking about his research and reading early drafts and um, giving feedback. And I, I had a conversation with him before the book launched where he talks about his understanding of the, the field at present, which is probably a hell of a lot better than mine. <laughs> you know, he, he talked about how this is a moment and I couldn't agree more that it's really ripe for integration where people are looking for ways of synthesizing information across all of these supposedly separate camps and understandings. Mm -hmm. And I think he's modeled that really beautifully throughout his career and his more recent memoir, which is also sort of a how-to guide of how to live a virtuous and helpful life in recovery, um, which is called Recovery Rising, I think is Mm -hmm. is a beautiful, beautiful source for learning about that, but also, you know, a lot of other, a lot of other folks, you know, people from the Buddhist recovery movement have been yeah. tremendously helpful to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, so many Kevin Griffin though, is uh, one yeah. of the real foundational folks there. Yeah. And um, within psychiatry, a bunch of folks, but the most important people probably are people that nobody would know the names of right. uh, people who, or just wise, unassuming, grounded people, whether it's because of a spiritual practice or because of their just like broad thinking and humanistic approach to psychiatry or to research or whatnot. And people who lead by example in those ways and model humility and rational, flexible thinking. And writers, I, you know, here, yeah. here's the last thing I'll say is that um, I've gotten so much, and this is part of what motivated me to write the book. I've mm-hmm. gotten so much from people who've written about addiction recovery, especially their own addiction recovery. Yeah. And people I, you know, I never met before, um, but I got so much strength and encouragement from the writing, like Leslie Jameson. Yeah. You seem to really love being on a show with her. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was great. And, you know, it, we, we had an event and um, it was just fantastic. You know, I'm sure if you dug below the surface, there's things that we would disagree about, but yeah. uh, it, it's just tremendous to get that sense from a book of the community mm-hmm. of recovery and the community of people who just so deeply care about this topic. So, um, you know, there've been so many figures throughout history who say like books are my friends, <laughs> you know, the yeah, sort of yeah. nerdy kid that retreats to the attic to just read books. And that was definitely me. And, um, that's been, that's been like a real blessing of putting a real book out in the world. And, uh, what are the, uh, barriers to getting to this, uh, integration that, uh, uh Bill White imagines, you know, we talked about the sort of, uh, silos of people you know not sort of reaching out to each other uh, what what can individuals be doing in in their their own sort of circles uh, whether they're treatment professionals or just people in recovery to sort of encourage a more holistic and more sort of tolerant approach well because I imagine a lot of your listeners are in recovery, uh, 
I'll I'll share what I've heard, which I think is true. That six of them are. I'll ask the other one. <laughs> <laughs> if um, if it's safe for you, yeah, and if you feel comfortable doing so, to share your story of addiction and recovery, yeah, because I think connecting on that human level and mm-hmm. meeting a real physical person or maybe pixels on Zoom, whatever, uh, is is such a powerful way. Mm-hmm. to connect with people around the real stakes of addiction and recovery. And I think that lesson applies uh, even for some of the ideological divisions within recovery. I've heard so many stories of um, people on supposedly opposite ends of the political divide who, when they unite around a sense of service and shared mission, they're able to put down their differences and all these things that they thought were so important to them if you make your true yardstick, how do I save a life? How do I help somebody with addiction? It's remarkable how much mm-hmm. common ground that we can find. So I think that would probably be the second thing that comes to mind is service. Yeah. Uh, and of course, um, recovery, mutual help traditions have recognized it for ages, not just 12 sets, but going back to the Washingtonians and earlier, yeah. that that service was a crucial component of one's own recovery. Now, I like a lot of the stuff you were reading, I remember already being in the recovery rooms when they were talking about, you know, the addiction gene. Great, we're going to be able to identify it and all that sort of thing. There have been a lot of hopeful things. And uh, neuroimaging was one of them. Uh, uh, who was it? It was uh, Judith uh, Grissel's book, Never mm-hmm. Enough. Uh, yeah. She thought, you know, again, in recovery, she's going to become a neuroscientist and uh, solve recovery and 25 years later she sort of wrestles with uh, how far or how not far it's gotten right <laughs> mm-hmm. but uh, mm-hmm. like i hear uh nora uh vocal she uh, i remember when she was all excited uh, you know there was this hbo special on addiction about you know see the color of the brain this is a person and now she's not just advocating for uh, abstinence, but uh, harm reduction and that sort of thing. And is that moving the goalposts so we can uh, make it easier to play the game, or is it just being more holistic? Like, like, how do you interpret that sort of transition in her language? Not totally sure. There's a connection between reductionist thinking about the brain to thoughts about harm reduction. Okay, okay. There might be. You know, I think there probably are ways, but, you know, I I don't know Nora personally, Dr. Volkow, I should probably say. Um, I I have a lot of respect for her. I think she's done tremendous work and has headed up a really challenging and politicized agency, the National Institute of Drug Abuse, and worked across multiple administrations to try to help people with addiction. Yeah. You know, in the book, I take issue with a few of her statements regarding the nature of brain disease, but I also think, you know, she sort of backed off from that looking at her public exactly. statements. Exactly. She's outgrown but, them too. Yeah. Yeah. She's even just like not that interested in the whole disease stuff anyway. And at least at the academic level, you know, it's kind of boring, you know, forget about the disease stuff. <laughs> I thought we already covered that already. Yeah. So I, I, you know, I don't know, I would speculate that in a perfect world, 
where she had absolutely free reign. If, it, if NIDA was like a central bank and it was totally insulated from political pressures, yeah. she would have gone around to harm reduction a lot earlier. Right. Um, she's smart and she's flexible. I know that she she really admires Maya Svalovitz's writings, who yeah. of course is a really strong harm reduction proponent. So I just don't know. I, I think it's really hard to look inside the mind of someone who's operating within a political reality. Yeah, I, I do think that it's remarkable. It's a remarkable piece of evidence that consciousness is changing such that even despite the more recent political kerfuffle about crack pipes, that it's politically viable for the Biden administration to come out and support harm reduction in some significant ways. Uh, we still have a long way to go, but I think people's views are changing very, very rapidly about addiction because they're seeing it and people yeah. are talking about it in a different way. Yeah, we always hear the uh, extremes. They're the loudest. The middle of the road people who don't speak up about it. I, I think there's more and more of that for sure. Yeah, yeah. One last thing, uh, just in listening to your discussion with uh, John Kelly, in your uh, intro and outro, you kind of sort of soft pedaled it a little bit. Did, did you feel like he was too much of a flag waver for uh, like a 12 step facilitation or something? Uh, or, um, you know, did you just feel that was left out of the conversation uh, that, you know, and or other, you know, peer to peer type modalities? I didn't want to have a podcast about this question of whether 12 step works. I think that's not the most interesting question to have a discussion with John Kelly about. So I really made an effort to focus on the pathways to recovery. Uh, what do we know scientifically about flourishing and recovery? What are the different ways that uh, people change and grow? And also I had John Kelly on my podcast. And so I felt like I had to get him to say something about AA in 12-step facilitation, because I wanted to get his viewpoint there. I yeah. just, I wanted to be really explicit that that wasn't the whole story. So, you know, first off, there are detractors who make really uh, unhelpful uh, criticisms of the AA studies. Um, so I'm not talking about that, but there there yeah. are also more nuanced scientific and methodological critiques that are are not about like debunking what Keith Humphreys and John Kelly did, but it's more about like refinements and the, the the precise questions about how you understand the research. Mm -hmm. I just didn't want to go there. But I guess I guess in my intro and outro, I wanted to acknowledge that um there are ways that people argue about and use that data. And hopefully in my show notes, I gave people enough links that they could go look for themselves and and think about that. But you know, at the end of the day, I I agree and I've heard I think I've heard John Kelly and Keith Humphreys both say this, that this kind of like the disease stuff in some ways, like this debate about whether or not AA works, who cares? Like, don't we, don't we know that it's really helpful? Like, don't we know that there, you know, the devil's in the details in terms of some of the ways that we um, institutionalize 12 step uh, within maybe a dysfunctional treatment system, right? but that's not about um, a thoughtful and um, you know, medically mature way of introducing 12-step facilitation 
therapy. I just think, you know, there, you know, there's so many lives on the line. Like there are more interesting questions than like going deep on, uh, going deep on those studies. I thought you got the best out of them. I've listened to many of his, uh, sort of YouTube things and other interviews. And, uh, uh, I thought it was just a fantastic discussion. You could tell there was one scientist and another scientist. One was also a consumer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know had uh more stake in the game <laughs> yeah yeah well thank you i mean i can tell that you really care about this field and you read and listen to a lot of stuff so um i'm really glad you found it useful that's really nice yeah thing. i really did i and you know i think this is a sort of a glory days of uh you know recovery just because totally. It's democratized recovery. Everyone can have access to the leading pacemakers now and, you know, find out for themselves and craft their own way. I mean, there's always the fear of too much choice leads to indecision, but I I think it'll work out. So uh, thanks for uh, spending some time with us. It was a treat for me. One last time for people who want to link to your podcast, find out about your book or email you directly, fire away. Sure. Yeah. So the best place to find me is on my website. It's carlericfisher.com. And there are different ways of spelling that. But if you Google it, you'll wind up in the right place. And if you like podcasts, I have a podcast of my own called Flourishing After Addiction. It's deep dive interviews with experts, advocates, people with lived experience talking about addiction and recovery from all sorts of different wonky multiple perspectives so love for you to check it out and drop me a line let me know what you think thanks again thanks for joe it's great to meet you thanks so much for reaching out um this is the stuff i really love is going deep on addiction and recovery with people who really know the stuff so um it's been a real pleasure yeah i appreciate it until next time i'll let you get on with your day (laughs) yeah all right thanks joe thanks thanks a lot bye now take care Peace out. My name is Mario Hornbacher. I'm an author and uh, professor of uh, writing and journalism, and I am in long-term recovery from substance and other addictions. This is Rebellion Dogs Radio. Thanks, Carl. Check out Flourishing After Addiction. It's on the Carl Eric Fisher website or wherever you consume your podcasts. Bookmark it now. I know you want to. Until next time, this has been episode 68 of Rebellion Dogs Radio. If you're listening on a mobile device, uh, Google Rebellion Dogs Publishing or Rebellion Dogs Radio. Look for episode 68 for show notes and also uh, more community, more blogs, more podcasts, more links, more books we love. Now, the thing with music is everyone likes what they like. I have a pretty wide range of favorite genres, uh, so it makes putting music in a podcast sort of a precarious or possibly divisive thing. You know, not everyone who likes twang likes horns and strings, and not everyone that likes those two things likes distortion. I love it all. Uh, So anyway, it's my podcast, my playlist. I won't think about it too much. So channeling... Uh, Maybe Huey Lewis and I Want a New Drug or Grace Slick uh, and Go Ask Alice. This song is Goodnight Sunrise. It's called One Pill.
Hi, this is Vanessa and David from Toronto rock band Goodnight Sunrise. And you're tuned in to Rebellion Dogs Radio. Bow, wow, wow. Rock, rock, rock. Woof. Thanks for listening to Rebellion Dogs Radio.